it's just a blessing to be here with you and to see you all and to join you together in recognizing Reformation Sunday. I imagine that if we asked you who you knew who was a reformer from those days, you would immediately come up with Martin Luther, of course, because it was on this day in 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the cathedral door at Wittenberg in Germany. And then you'd probably mention John Calvin, who was a uh, reformer in uh, France. Germ Germany had its Luther, but France had its Calvin. And uh, Luther began his work in 1517, and Calvin began his work about uh, 15 years later, around 1530 or just before. But there are two other reformers that we seldom hear talked about. And one of those is John Wycliffe in England, who had begun his reforming, church, his reforming work with the church in 1370. That'd be 150 years ahead of Luther. And then the one who was immediately affected by John Wycliffe was John Huss, a Czech living in Bohemia who was burned at the stake in 1415 for being a reformer of the church. And uh, later today, I'm going to talk to you about my favorite reformer, whom I haven't mentioned yet. And uh, we'll use him as an example of the type of believers that we ought to be if we want to carry, carry forward this tradition that can be summed up really very basically in the Latin that they use, sola scriptura, or the, the word of God alone, scripture alone. It is our primary, it is our only authority in what we look at. So you have your notes there, and if you have a pen, you may want to fill in some blanks on, uh, as you go through this. But first of all, we want to talk about the reasons for the Reformation. First of all, it was a time when the attention of mankind was shifted from heaven to earth and from God to man. There were things going on in history, in Europe especially. It was an age of discovery that expanded our knowledge of the globe geographically, culturally, and biologically. Uh, we had explorers sailing the seas of our globe and finding new lands and discovering new riches in those lands. And a nationalism began to arise whereby individual nations began to stand independent of the papacy in Rome. And so they enfeebled the Holy Roman Empire of that time. And economically and socially, corporations were being built and a guild system was disintegrating under the rise of individual capitalism. What we have seen in America as capitalism was something that was not always in the world and that began to grow, especially during this period of time, starting in about the 14th century and going forward, and people became individually empowered. That's part of this. It's the idea of people saying, I can do things for myself. I have the power to change my life myself. I have the ability to be educated. I have the ability to do something with my hands, to perform work, to care for my family, to care for those around me. And they gathered together in groups and began to develop nations that would stand against that which they felt was a oppressive papacy in Rome. There are two major contributors to the Reformation, uh, according to uh, Owen Chadwick. He says, first of all, the increasing control of kings over kingdoms. 
They began to replace the church's power. Consider the Spanish Inquisition, in which the Pope did not, in fact, Rome did not direct those inquisitions. It was the state that did. And it happened also in other countries, in England and France and Germany. The Vatican ambassadors were ignored, and there was no appeal could be made to Rome. The appeal had to be made to the kings. And then secondly, there was the improved, putting that in quotes, improved education of intelligent Western minds, the rise of secular humanism in a variety of forms. In Italy, it was artistic, it was literary, it was philosophical. In Northern Europe, it was religious and theological. And Erasmus is said to have laid the egg that Luther hatched, is the way it's normally put. You see, there was an abuse of power with the rise of political powers. Political rulers had dominion over the people, and the church was willing to ally even with Islam in order to defeat such kingdoms. So you had this unholy alliance of Islam and Christianity in the papacy that gathered together to fight against the kings of the nations around the world who sought to have liberty from the oppression of Rome. And there was the abuse of possessions increasing secularization, increasing gain of lands and properties, a focus on economic wealth. And this led to the fact that then kings wanted to protect wealth within their own reign, within their own realms. And people wanted to protect the wealth that they gained. And so they would prevent it from going to Rome. And that led to a uh, conflict with Rome. But when we talk about such things, we have to come to what really most historians say is the heart of the Reformation. It's not economic, it's not political, it's spiritual. It was because there was a failure of change in the papacy and in the Roman Catholic Church. It was corrupt. It uh, oppressed the people under their control. And so churchmen began to speak of Reformation and they thought of not just administrative or legal or moral reformation, but they talked about doctrinal reformation as well. They believed that Christ was being ignored. The gospel was not being preached. The word of God was not being obeyed. In fact, the word of God was kept in a language people couldn't understand. It was kept in Latin, the Latin Vulgate. And in the counter-reformation, the Roman Catholic Church doubled down on that. They did a second Latin translation. Instead of the translation of Jerome from 400 AD, they substituted the, the, what became known as the Clementine uh, Vulgate that was un, done under Pope Clement during the Reformation, in which they tried to solidify their doctrines against those of the Reformers. What are the characteristics of the Reformation? This would be your next point there probably in your outline. First of all, the Reformation and the Reformers were preoccupied with the world to come rather than the world we live in now. They expected the speedy return of Christ. That's one of the primary things that came out of the Reformation, and one of the primary reasons for the beginning of the Reformation is turning away. They saw the secularism. They saw the humanism. They saw the materialism that was going on, and they said, no, we need to look to Christ, and he said he's coming again, so let's look for his coming. So they were preoccupied with the world to come. Secondly, they saw all things in the light of eternity. It was not a matter of just saying, well, how do I live today? 
But am I prepared for eternity? What happens when I die? Where will I go? What will happen to my family? What, what do they have to look forward to? This life is so short and so brief. What is there after it? The care for eternity, what the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wrote, that God had placed within human hearts the thought, the concept of eternity. So they desired to look at that. They saw all things in the light of, the, of eternity. And third, they were enlivened by God's program of redemption. They were thrilled by the account of Christ dying on the cross for our sins, rising again from the dead, and proclaiming that message of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, they subordinated all authority to that of the Word of God. This was their authority. The Bible. Even though most people didn't have a copy, they said, we must have a copy. That's why John Wycliffe got so start, started in this in England in the 1300s. He was a Bible translator. He wanted everyone in England to be able to read the Word of God in their own language rather than being forced to have to learn Latin in order to understand the Word of God. They, he wanted everyone to have a copy of the Word of God for themselves. And when he translated the Word of God, he, among other English translators, even smuggled Bibles into England to get them into the homes of, the, of England and the people of England. Next, they were intolerant of doctrinal dissent. This was positive in some ways, but was negative in other ways, as we'll see. First of all, it was positive because it said, if you disagree with the Word of God, then you're wrong, not the Word of God. We're not going to change the Word of God to fit our opinions. We take the Word of God for what it says, and if God says it, that settles it. You know, we, we get used to saying, if God's Word says it, I believe it, that settles it. No, no, no. If God's Word says it, that settles it, whether or not you believe it. You see, it doesn't depend on whether we believe it. It's true whether we believe it or not. Those who started the Reformation were also characterized by a firm belief in the world of evil, the world of Satan, Satan and demons. They believed that the Scripture was accurate, that Jesus himself taught the existence of demons and of Satan, and they realized that there was that power, and they taught it. They were often millenarian. In other words, they believed in a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And they were intensely messianic. They believed that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And lastly, the last characteristic of the Reformation, the translation and publication of Bibles, which I've already mentioned. Luther translated the Bible into German. Calvin translated it into French. You have many translations taking place all around the world. More than 100 different editions the Bible translated between 1457 and 1500. Long before the King James Bible, there were Bible translations being made, even in English. And these were the hallmark of the Reformation. We can thank the Reformers that you and I now have the Bible in our own language, and we have so many different English translations. Why? Because of what the Reformers fought for and believed that every man, woman, and child should have the right to read the Bible for themselves in their own languages. That is one of the reasons why God burdened our hearts to be involved in Bible translation and to go to Bangladesh to be involved in Bible translations there is the right of everyone, of any language, of any culture, of any nation, to have the Word of God in their own language. There were four questions 
that divided the reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, how must a person be saved? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the answer of the Reformation. So when we ask that question, how must I be saved? We know what it is. It's God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's his gift. And it's by faith alone, not by works. And it is through Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than in Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. The second question, where does spiritual authority reside? Well, we know the answer to that too. Only in the Scripture. The Scriptures alone. It comes back again, you see, to sola scriptura. The Scriptures alone. What is the church? Now, there were those who answered that by saying, the church is made up by all those who have been baptized as infants. And then there were those who said, well, the church is made up of anybody who wants to join the church. But there were those who were reformers who said, no, the church is made up of believers alone, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. That only those can be members of the church. So as we have membership classes here, and we're looking forward to adding nearly 65 members to our church on November 7th, this exhibits the tradition of the Reformation and how we play into that and how we're still following along because we have the same belief that the church is made up of believers alone, those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ alone by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and on the foundation and basis of the Scripture alone. The fourth is what is the essence of Christian living? And that is living by faith alone according to the Scriptures alone. Living by faith alone, according to the scriptures alone. So having said that in the introduction, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you would please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I want to read these verses for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you 
and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank, constant, thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let's bow in prayer before the Lord. Father, we ask now as we come to you with this text of Scripture today that you will focus our hearts and minds upon your word here that Paul has written. He wrote this by the direction and superintending work of your Holy Spirit and left it to us that your Spirit might teach us from it and that we might understand the value of your word that you've communicated to us and that we might allow it to have the, its rightful role of authority in our lives and what we believe and what we do. And we ask you to guide us in that in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see the circumstances of the apostles. And Paul, in chapter 1, identifies who it is that is writing this epistle. Paul writes it together with Silvanus and Timothy. They are the three. They are the they in this context. They had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. When you go back through the book of Acts, as the pastor Adam is taking us through the book of Acts, we'll be coming to those sections where we'll see how the apostles and the missionaries going out in those days suffered persecution for preaching the gospel. How in Philippi, Paul was placed in jail, in chains. How he'd been whipped and uh, placed there in chains. And as we see that, we see the way that they were shamefully treated. They were Roman citizens, but treated as though they were not Roman citizens. They, didn't, they weren't even given their rights as citizens of the earthly kingdom of which they were citizens, legally, by birth, and by law. So that uh, they suffered in the proclaim, proclaiming of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. And even at Thessalonica, they declared to them the gospel of God. And again, in the midst of much conflict, literally here, it's a struggle. It's the word for agony. They agonized at Thessalonica. And you say, well, boy, I don't read that much about it. Well, if we go back and look, we'll see some of it. But we're not told everything. The book of Acts selects parts to tell us and doesn't fill in all the details. And sometimes Paul gives us additional details in his epistles that Luke was not led by the Spirit of God to include in the book of Acts. And one of these is how they were in a conflict, a struggle, an agonizing struggle at Thessalonica, a place where they preached the word of God and this epistle is written to those believers there. They know that history. They don't have to have it written down. They were there. They understand exactly what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy went through when they were at Thessalonica. And while these three men were there, they were not cowering under that conflict with agonizing suffering that they faced there, they boldly, they had the boldness in God to proclaim the word of God, the gospel of God. And Paul says, you know that our going was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not void. It was not empty of any return. It was not purposeless. It had eternal results because they faithfully preached the word of God. 
And you see, it's in this context that we see that God's word will not fail, regardless of the conflict we face, regardless of the agony of preaching the gospel or preaching the word of God in any circumstance, in any situation, in any nation or any culture or any language. The word of God never returns void. It never returns without accomplishing what God has sent it out to do. It is, the word of God will not fail because it has significant content and power. It's the word of his authority. You know, Jesus spoke about those who undermined the authority of God and his word. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, we're told about the Pharisees and the scribes who came to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God had commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. In other words, they're saying, My mother and father have a need, and I, as their child, have the ability to supply for them. It's talking about here perhaps elderly parents who have need, and a child is saying, Ah, I'm not going to take care of you. <laughs> that money I have here, I'm going to give to God. I'm not going to give it to you. I know you have a need, but I'm worshiping God. I'm serving God. I don't serve you. And Jesus is saying, That is false spirituality. That is wrong. That is sin. That is anti-God. It's against the commandment of God. He said, if you obey me, then you use that money to take care of the parents that I told you to honor and to respect. He says, you have made the word of God, the commandment of God, void by your tradition. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Actually, what Christ says here when he says vain, you've made it void, the word is actually you've made it lordless. You've made it without authority. You've removed its mastery, its lordship over you. You've cast it off and said, I'm not bound by the word of God. You say, well, how could they do that? I mean, here they are giving tithes or claiming to give tithes. Isn't that obedience to the word of God? Not when it is in conjunction with disobeying honor, father, and mother. You know, as we look at today and we see the dishonoring of parents and the disobedience to parents and the disrespect of parents that goes on in our society, uh, and it's led even, not even by the sinful nature of our own children, but by the sinful nature of even the educational systems in which they, see, they sit and gain their education where they're taught that if your parents do this, you don't follow your parents. You don't obey your parents. In fact, you report your parents. It's getting in the same way it was in China and in Russia that if you uh, go against something that the state demands, the child is responsible to report their parents to the government so that the government can take the child and raise them the way they want to raise their children. Does that sound familiar to things that are going on today in our society? I mean, we're so close to being that direction. Thankfully, we're not there yet the way those other societies were, but if we don't do something about it, we will be. And part of this is 
a whole society turning its back against the authority of God's word that says to honor father and mother. Jesus himself says, when you forsake that, you have made the word of God lordless. You have contradicted its authority. You have undermined its authority. You must not do that. You know, there are three forms of spiritual authority. One is the authority of the Lord and his written revelation. The second form is the authority of the church and its quote-unquote infallible popes. And I include in that quote-unquote infallible popes any teacher of the word of God, any preacher of the word of God, any Sunday school teacher, any parent teaching the word of God. Is our spirituality dependent upon the authority of God and his word or upon the authority of human beings? We obey God's word because of what he said, not because of what others tell us God said. That's why we need to go to the word of God alone. That's what the reformers saw so clearly. They got very tired of the fact that people made themselves lords and made themselves spiritual popes, even though they weren't the pope, because they found that people would yield to human authority far more quickly than they would to God's authority. The third is the authority of human reason and its self-styled sovereignty. That's what's going on in secular humanism. That's what's going on in our society today. And not our society alone, but many societies, in fact, all societies around the world, they are saying, no, we do, will not have God reign over us. We will not have Christ reign over us. We will not have this word dictate to us what we should believe and what we do and how we live. Instead, we will say how we ought to live and we will determine what the law is and we make ourselves kings. We put ourselves on the throne in heaven in place of God. That's what got Satan into such trouble, remember? In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, he wanted to ascend above the throne of God and declare himself to be God and have all authority over God and God cast him out of heaven. And it worked so well for him, he thought he'd advise Adam and Eve to do the same thing in the Garden of Eden. Well, you know how that turned out. So these are the foundations of spiritual authority. Which one do we follow? Which of those three? Obviously, the authority of the Lord and his written revelation. That is our spiritual authority, not the authority of human beings and not the authority of ourselves set up as lords over our lives. The foundation of spiritual authority is God himself. God is true, therefore his words are true, right? How can they not be true? You say, well, I don't trust what that guy says over there because he always lies. Does God ever lie? Let God be true and every man a liar, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2. God is trustworthy, therefore God's words are trustworthy. God is without error, therefore God's word is without error. God is sovereign, Lord over all, therefore his word must have authority over all. You see, God enabled the apostles to speak his word boldly. They speak with God's authority. That's the boldness that you can have in presenting the gospel to your neighbor or to a family member or to a friend. You can have that boldness because the authority is not your authority or my authority or PBC's authority. The authority is here in the word of God. And the reformers died and were burned at the stake and were uh, drowned in the rivers of Europe and drawn and quartered and split asunder 
And thousands died during the Reformation so that you and I might have the word of God in our own language and have it as our sole authority that we might speak the gospel boldly where we go. That's the inheritance we receive from the Reformation. Let's look next at their calling. They were approved by God. And notice here in verses 3 and 4 how that Paul writes about this in kind of an interesting way. He says, for our appeal, literally that's the word exhortation, our exhortation, our exposition, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, and that word approved there means to be tested and demonstrated, to be proven to be solid, to be true, to be honest, to be authentic. He entru- we entrusted to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. And here the ESV says to test our hearts. But that word test is exactly the same word that is used for approved, translate approved. And so in reality, these both should be translated as approved. They should be both taken as that it's God approved us for the, to be entrusted with the gospel And as a result of that, he's the one who approves our hearts. He's the one who tests our hearts and proves what our hearts are. So sound exposition or exhortation of God's word has nothing to do with error or impurity or deceit. It must always be removed from that. That's why we charge our pastor, we charge our Sunday school teachers, we charge our uh, 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 Bible classes, in the hands of people who we're told teach, preach the word of God. Don't spend so much time studying those who misinterpret the word of God that when you come to the word of God, the error creeps in. Study the word of God. Saturate yourself with the word of God. Teach the word of God. Remove all error. There's no room for error. If you make a mistake, go back and apologize. If you make a mistake, go back and correct it. Do something about it. Maintain the truth in everything. Make certain that what you teach is the truth. And that's why our pastor spends hours and hours and hours and why our Sunday school teachers and Bible class teachers and Awana teachers spend hours and hours studying the Bible for themselves is so that they would do it without error. And they can do it with boldness and with certainty and conviction that what they're teaching is correct. They're not deceiving those who receive the teaching. They're not bringing impurity. They're not destroying the uh, the clean word of God by polluting it with human reasoning and human authority or human thought. True authority has nothing in common with such things. And secondly, the exposition of Scripture that is approved by God, literally tested and approved by Him, has nothing to do with pleasing men. It has everything to do with pleasing God and God alone. We don't teach. I'm not up here to teach to please your ears or to please you or to please Pastor Adam or to please the elder board or to please my wife or to please my friends here. No. My charge is to preach the Word of God and please God. God is the one who must say, well done. God's approval is what I need to preach for and teach for. My wife has often told me that uh, she knows when I've done a good job preaching because I'll go back and sit in the car and as we're on the way home, I'll say, man, I 
I just, wow, I think I missed it this morning. Or I, I, just, I just feel like I wasn't very clear this morning. And she says, honey, it's one of the best sermons you ever preached. And then I come in the car and I sit down and I say, wow, hit the ball out of the ball, ballpark today. You know, man, uh, it's just like Rosario, you know, I, I hit it out. And uh, she'll say, uh, no, honey, that's, that, that isn't your best sermon. Not at all, not even close. You see, we can get in the way of the Word of God ourselves. When we're preaching and teaching to please men, to please women, to please children, just to please human ears, we're, on the, we're in the wrong place. And too often we may do it to please ourselves. And when we do it to please ourselves, it's really wrong. Because it has to be to please God. And it pleases God to humble his servants. So there are times when we make mistakes in what we say, mispronouncing a word, uh, forgetting what we were going to tell you when it was written right in our notes, right along. Those times when we sit down after we preach the word of God and taught the word of God, and we say, oh, man, I, I, I didn't get everything done the day the way I wanted to. It just wasn't top notch today. That's because our Lord humbles us into a place of saying, you're to please me, not you, and not anyone else. And when we do that, the authority of his word comes through loud and clear. God's authority assumes his pleasure. He alone is the one who can test and prove the human heart, and he does so. Third, the conduct of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy Whereas apostles of Christ, they were sent out to preach the gospel, verses 5 through 12. They did not use flattering words or greed, even the pretext of greed. They preached with God as their witness. Because the word of God and the authority of God has no relationship to flattering words or to greed. We do not preach the word of God for money. One of the things that my pastor, when he led me to the Lord years and years ago, told me, he said, Bill, he said, God obviously is leading you into ministry. But he said, there's one thing I want you to remember above all things. If you ever make a choice of which ministry God is leading you to on the basis of how much money it pays, you're making the wrong choice. In fact, you need to get on your knees before God and ask him to remove all thought of that from your heart. He said, I charge you to look at each ministry situation that God offers you as you look at it. And to say, God, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Don't ask how much pay it is. He says, oh, he says, I know that you'll get married one day, you'll have a family, and you want to take care of that family. They said, I don't think you ought to ever make a decision on whether or not a church can pay you a salary to take care of your family as much as you would like. He said, instead, you need to trust God to lead you where he takes you. So when it comes time to dis discuss salary, he said, by then, you should have already decided what ministry you're going to select. And that's how I came to Master's Seminary. I told Dick Mayhew, uh, I went in one day and I said, okay, I've had one week of interviews here 
And I believe, Barb and I have prayed about it. We believe this is where God would have us serve. We just had returned from Bangladesh, 15 years of missionary service in Bangladesh. And uh, we did not know exactly what God had in store for us, but as they, they called me to interview, I went into Dick Mayhew's office. He was the dean of the seminary at that time. And I said, okay, Dick. I said, Barb and I have decided yes. And he said, well, I haven't even show, showed you the contract yet. He said, we haven't even talked about salary. And I said, I don't even care to see it. I said, it doesn't matter. Just show me the contract. I'll sign it right now. And he said, man, you could have saved me a lot of money if you told me that before. <laughs> Now, I don't say that to brag because I cannot tell you that every decision I've ever made as a Christian was so sound and based on the same way. I wish I had. But that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We ought to always have that as our gauge of what we do for God, where we go, what kind of ministry or service we have for him. We ought to be willing to go where he would go, where he would have us go, and trust him to care for us. That is not easy. And you as parents, especially here, you know that. There are decisions you've had to make this year that you struggled with and were hard for you. And you know that that's one of the thoughts that come in. How do I care for my family? How do I take care of the things that are necessary? And how can I give time to this ministry of the church? And how can I do this? How can I do that? And can I afford to take two weeks off work to go on a missions trip? Or can I afford to do this or that? Or can I afford for our children to go to one of the camps? And we've got to learn to look first at, okay, first of all, is it God's will? And we need to teach our children the same thing. Is it God's will for you to go to that camp? What is God's will desire for you now? And to count that cost involved in that and not to make it on the basis of the dollar signs. There is no seeking, secondly, of human glory. No wielding of ecclesiastical authority here. Even though as apostles of Christ, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy could have expected the churches to pay them for their ministry and to care for them. Instead, Paul remained a tent maker so that there'd be, he could preach the gospel without charge and not be dependent. He says, I did not want to be a burden to any of you. Why? Because he was going under God's authority and trusting God to take care of things. And Paul did not want people to believe the gospel because he could stand there and say, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, therefore you've got to believe me. I'm an apostle. Capital A there, apostle. All right? No, he did not ever want to do that. Those times when he claimed authority as apostle was when his authority was being attacked for taking action based upon the word of God like church discipline. When he said the word of God demands that you discipline such a one, and then they denied that or would fight against it. Then he would claim the authority as an apostle and say, I've been proved by God, sent by God, called by God, and I have the authority to institute this discipline within this church. Otherwise, he preferred not to appeal to his apostleship. And he tells the Thessalonians that here. He says, thirdly, that their ministry was a labor of gentle love in verses 7 through 9. I find those verses fascinating. He says here, but we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. The words here, very dear, are literally beloved. Beloved. It's from that same word. that It's agape love that is talked about here. You are beloved to us. He says, we loved you. That's why we served among you. That's why we were gentle among you. That's why we were like a nursing mother caring for her children. This is the hardest lesson, I think, of new pastors in just as they come fresh out of seminary to learn is how to be gentle, nurturing shepherds of God's flock, caring for the sheep, loving them. You know, I hear many people say, you know, we want to send men out like John MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur, a man I love, a man I work under, a man that I admire in the Lord. And yet I find that many people really don't know John MacArthur the way that some of us know him. And that's because, first of all, he's not going to brag about it. He's not going to talk about it. But he has always showed himself to be loving and caring. The first time at Grace Church as a new young pastor that he faced opposition from elders on his own elder board He walked up to one of them after a service, put his arm around him and said, I love you, brother. How can I help you to do your best as I know you want? How do I help you succeed in your ministry of teaching you have here in our church? And this is a man who had been speaking publicly against him. But he did not respond by charging him. He did not respond by accusing him of dissension. He responded by putting his arm around him and saying, I love you. How can I help you do better in what you are doing to help our church? And from that moment, he won that man's heart and he became a disciple of John from that time on. And time and time again, I have heard people at Grace Community Church who had been hospitalized saying, the first person in to see me was Pastor John. Before the Sunday school teacher, before the group leader, before any associate pastor, he was there. And I've talked to those associate pastors who said, I don't understand it. I went to visit this person today. I was called. I dropped what I was doing. In fact, one of them said he left class because he was a seminary student at the time. He said, I left class to get to the hospital before Pastor John. He said, I got there and he'd already been there. (laughs) I said, oh, really? I thought you thought that Dr. MacArthur spent every hour of every day in his office with the door closed and studying his Bible. He says, yeah. He says, you've got to study a lot to preach like he does. I said, but he is a pastor. He's a shepherd of the sheep, and he cares. And like nursing him, Pastor Adam here showed me that when he first came here to this church. He had a love for the Word of God, a desire to preach the Word of God, to flame out preaching the Word of God, but he loved this flock. He came at a difficult time. And he came wanting to come in and nurture and show care for this flock that was hurting, that had been divided. There had been a great deal of bitterness. He engaged in a ministry of reconciliation to gather men and women into an office up there to talk with and say, How have we offended you? How can we apologize? How can we 
take care of these things. His concern was for the sheep of this flock. That is also what the reformers fought for. That's what the reformers died for. Not just for the authority of the word of God, but for the authority of the word of God that make a man of God and a woman of God, a child of God, willing to act with gentleness and compassion and love and care for others. That's hard, but it is a must. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready, we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. This morning, I'm going to be announcing my stepping down from the elder board. And it's partly because of this. It's because my wife and I, in caring for her mother, cannot be here as much as we'd love to be here. We're gone half the year. An elder can't be gone for half the year and do the work of an elder. Look at this. Paul is saying, we gave our own selves to you because we loved you. An elder is not just one who is among the sheep and smells like the sheep. He's one who's always here with the sheep. We don't believe in an honorary eldership. We don't believe in absentee eldership. Because this quality must be found there. If we follow the authority of the word of God. It must be there. They labored. They toiled. They worked. Yes, all three words are used here in the text. All three. The idea here of the labor is the same degree of labor as a woman giving birth to a child. And you women know that better than anyone else of what labor that is. And the second, toil, is that toil that is found when a man or a woman is putting a spade in the ground and finding it hard and difficult to move and they sweat and the sweat of their brow runs down into their face and the sweat of the eyes that sting the eyes and the back becomes weak and you become sore in every body part and bone and muscle because of the labor, the hard labor that's involved. And that's what Paul, Paul Silvanus, and Timothy are, are saying here. We have not only labored as a woman giving birth to a child, we've labored in hard labor as a ditch digger, and we go beyond that to work in every imaginable way. This ministry of the Word of God under the authority of God is not an easy life, and it's not an easy task, but it must be done. Fourth, the apostles lived the kind of life they encouraged all believers to live. <laughs> They're not turning and saying to people, now you need to labor in the vineyard of God too. You need to labor like we do. No. They said, you must follow God. You must do what God calls you to do. And then by their lives, they gave an example of what that might look like. Look at the lives of those who are in authority in the church. Watch their labor. They labor before God for us, each one, because of their love for us. And they put in a lot of labor. I think of Pat Hamlin, the chairman of our elder board. I've served under three different chairmen of the elder board in my 24 years as an elder in this church. And Pat, I really sincerely want to tell you that you are better than any of the previous. By a little bit. <laughs> All right? I don't want to have him get a big head. 
all right? Because I served under amazing elders, Jim Daggs, John Hughes. Those were the two previous elder chairmen. And Pat has done an amazing job. When I stepped down from being chairman several years ago and turned that over, the board turned that over to Pat to become chairman. He took that on, and, and I get to see, and the elders know how hard Pat works at that. I get to see how all the elders work, because still being on the elder board, I get all their texts, I get all those emails, I know where they're at, I know what they're doing, all the things are going on, the people they're seeing, the people they're helping, all the things they're talking about. The nights when they're in the middle of the night, they're up and not asleep because they have things they're doing on behalf of this congregation. These men labor night and day. They're the Pauls, the Sylvanuses, and the Timothys in this congregation. Believe me, you and I are privileged to sit in this church as members of this church under such men. They behaved with holiness, righteousness, blamelessness toward all the Thessalonian believers, we're told in verse 10. They were like fathers with their children, exhorting them, encouraging them onward. They consoled and encouraged. They cheered up, is actually the word here. They cheered up the believers in verse 12, implying the Thessalonians had to endure some pretty difficult times. But these men were there to cheer them up, to encourage them, to help them through the difficult times. And they charged or testified to them to live lives worthy of the God who had called them into his own kingdom and glory. That kingdom, the same as the millenarian thought of the reformers. Christ is going to return. Christ is going to set up his kingdom. Christ is going to return in glory and we'll see him in his glory. And this is what they wanted these believers to believe and share in. It was the goal of their ministry. In other words, they were to live now in light of what they would be in the future when Christ returns. So I ask you, how will Christ find us living when he returns? Will we be living the way Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy has, have exhorted us to do? I'm going to cut this short right here because I've run, I think, a little bit over time. And I don't want to go over time this morning. But I, I promised you I would share a couple things with you about my favorite reformer. You have there the conclusion in the points that were handed out to you. If you didn't get the handout, get it out when you leave. The points are there for the conclusion. And verse 13 just adds the confirmation of God's uh, spokesman being accepted by God in what they did. Who do I see as a reformer who fulfilled these things? Balthasar Hubmeier, a German, you may have never heard of his name before, Balthasar Hubmeier. His name is on a school out on the East Coast in Georgia, the Truett McConnell University, Christian University, a Christian college and seminary, is called the Balthasar Hubmeier School of Missions and Theology. Why? Balthasar Hubmeier was a contemporary of Ulrich Zwingli, at one time a colleague of Zwingli's. He believed that all disputes concerning faith and religion must be resolved by the word of God alone. He said, 
that the Holy Scripture alone is the true light and lantern through which all human argument, darkness, and objections can be recognized. He said, you speak to me much of Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, Augustine, church councils, church history, and old customs. I must somehow think that you lack the Scriptures, which do not want to come out of the quiver. And he would charge them and say, you need to bring the Scriptures out. It's by the Scriptures and the authority of Scripture alone. At one time in Nicholsburg, in Germany, 12,000 people gathered to hear him preach. Most of them he had personally baptized after leading them to the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was in July 1526. One year later, under the order of King Ferdinand, he was imprisoned in Kreuzenstein Castle, just north of Vienna in Austria. His wife, Elizabeth, to whom he had just been married for two years, was also imprisoned. They tried him. They could not get him to recant. What did they want him to recant of? Number one, he said the scriptures teach baptism for believers only by immersion. Zwingli said, no way. Zwingli, Calvin, and Luther believed in baptism for infants. Believed that even unbelievers could be baptized, but not Hubmeyer. Believers' baptism only by immersion. The Lord's table, symbolic in its elements, they are not transferred into the reality of the body and blood of Christ. Not transubstantiation, not even consubstantiation, which brings the body and blood of Christ alongside, even though it's not changed into, it's there. He believed in the memorial symbols of the Lord's table. Number three, church membership is for believers only. Demonstrated by their public obedience to the gospel in baptism as believers. Those were the three reasons he was called to trial. And Zwingli was the one who interrogated him along with the other inquisitors. They finally sent him to the rack, tying his hands and his feet to the rack and beginning to bear the pressure, taking and dislocating his shoulders, his elbows, his knees, his hips, torturing him all along the, the same time and whipping him, beating him, applying burns to parts of his body, puncturing his flesh. Under hours of such torture, he finally said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll recant. They released him, put him back in a cell where he prepared his recant statement. Then they stood him in the pulpit. And as he stood in the pulpit, he seemed to gain strength. He began to read. And it was not a recanting. It was a reaffirmation of everything he believed. He straightened, strengthened, filled the cathedral with a shout. Infant baptism is not of God. Men must be baptized by faith in Christ. And they dragged him off to the dungeon where he began to write out his entire statement of faith. No man has written more on baptism of believers than Hubmeyer. Even today in church history, no one has written more than he had to defend it. And for that, he was executed on March 10th, 1528 in Vienna. They took him, they stripped him, they tied him to a stake in a courtyard. They rubbed 
gunpowder and sulfur into his long beard and his hair, put sticks and fuel around him, and set it afire and killed him. Two days later, they took his wife, Elizabeth, to the biggest bridge on the Danube River, tied a heavy stone around her neck, and threw her over into the waters to drown. That's what he paid. That's what they paid for the heritage we have and what we believe at Placerita Bible Church. That's why on Reformation Sunday, we take time to remember that what we have really rests upon the shoulders of the apostles in the New Testament and all those believers throughout the history of the church who have paid the ultimate price that we might have the word of God ourselves as our authority to read for ourselves and that we take the same stand doctrinally as they do. That's bound prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you've given to us. We thank you for the way that you've led in our lives and in this church. We thank you this church stands, this valley as a lighthouse for your word along with several other churches that have the same confession. We thank you for those men that are on our elder board right now and our deacons, for our teachers, our youth workers, our children's workers, for our music team, our worship team, for our counseling ministry and all those involved in that. We thank you for the many, many people in this congregation who are exhibiting their submission to your authority by what they do without pay, without remuneration, because they love your word and love you. And how I thank you for that and the privileges to sit in such a congregation and to serve alongside these people. Just thank you for that this morning. And I pray that for those new members who are coming in, in just another week, that they might see this is an opportunity to join with boldness and with dedication and devotion and with great joy in the ministry of the gospel through this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.